if you have a Bible, please turn to John chapter 9. I always say this, but I don't know if you believe me anymore. Um, this is one of the best stories in the Bible. Uh, this is one of the best stories I think we have in the Gospels. It's full of dramatic irony. I feel really dumb even teaching this section because after you read it, you have it. You like you read it, you're like, you can't improve on the way John wrote this. You just can't do it. Um, it's full of dramatic irony and retold with amazing skill. Uh, so as you're reading this, as I read this and we read this together, watch for the reversals in the story. Watch for the double meanings in the story. All of them are insanely amazing. So John 9, are you there? I'm going to read the whole chapter. The whole chapter. Okay. Verse 1. As Jesus went along, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked, asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground and he made some mud with the saliva. And he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself said, I'm the man. That's me. Now, now then, were your eyes open, they asked? He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud. I like how he doesn't know how he made the mud. Made some mud, and he put it on my eyes, and he told me to go wash in the pool of Siloam. So I went, and I washed, and then I can see. Where is this man, they asked him. He said, I don't know, he said. They brought the, then they brought the, uh, to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. And he said, he put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So the Pharisees were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. He thought he was was faking. So they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you, uh, you say was born blind? How is it that he can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind. How he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man's a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've already told you, and you did not listen. Why do you want me to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? (laughs) This guy's awesome. (laughs) Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, 
Now, it, that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. Get out of here. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. And as he was thrown out, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And he went and found him and said, do you believe in the Son of Man? That's a Messiah term. Who is he, sir? The man said. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with them heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. That story is so, so good. Now, before I pray, I know this, that I'm a leader in the church. I'm a leader in this church. And being a spiritual leader, this story is not lost on me, that I can be the most blind person in this room. Okay, it's not lost on me. It's very apparent to me. So as I approach this text, I approach it, I'm trying to approach it with a lot of humility and confidence in Christ that Christ can make me see. And Christ can cause you to see as well. I feel, to be honest with you, a little powerless because only God can open the eyes of the blind. I can preach my guts out. I can be as whatever as I can be, but only God can open your eyes. So I feel a bit powerless. Like, God, I I can't do this. Like, I can just read the story and I can talk about it, but I can't. Only you can open the eyes. So let me pray that God would do that. God, I am very, very, very humbled at this, knowing that religious leaders can be so blind so confident that they know, so sure that they see that they don't see at all. And so God, I ask God that Jesus, you would make yourself known and clear, that you would open my eyes, that you would open our eyes together, that we would be postured like this man, ever so open to the progression of knowing who you are, always progressing towards you. And may the end result be worship. May the end result in this whole church today, from the children who are gathering right behind me to every single soul in this room, may the end result of today be worship, that we fall in worship at the feet of Jesus. Would you speak to us, Lord? I just submit everything, all my capacities to you, and ask that you would lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Um, This weekend, my wife and I went on a uh, little trip to Napa. Whenever we go on a road trip that's longer than any, an hour, we always try to find a really good playlist. And someone had sent my wife this playlist off a music streaming service called Spring Break 1995, <laughs> the best playlist ever created. I grew up, my wife and I grew up kind of in the 80s, but we turned, teen, we, we turned teenagers, became teenagers in the early 90s. Um, we both went to the same high school. We know the same music. And so we were just driving there like rocking out to like TLC and Boys to Men and Naughty by Nature, which is a very biblical band name I came to realize. And I'm like, it'd be a great sermon title in Romans or something. And I'm, we're listening to this and I'm like, and I forget what song, we, we were singing like every song. And this one time we're singing and I, or I was singing like rather loudly and I turned to her and I'm like, the 90s were so awesome. 
She's like, I know. Like, we were just so into it. Um, the 90s were awesome, by the way. Um, and I remember there was a, a really, really crazy thing to sweep through the 90s. There were these 3D magic eye images. Do you remember these things? These things were huge. People would go to the, to the mall. That's what they did when, in my town, Bakersfield. We went to the mall. Um, I haven't heard that said in a long time. But anyways, they go to the mall, and there'd be those kiosks in the mall, and there would be all the new prints, and people would just layers and layers and layers of people, hundreds of people would be around the kiosk, like trying to see the image. And people got so crazy about this that they would buy these images, frame them, take them home, remove their family picture from the den, and put this in its place. Like, I went to homes where, like, everyone would gather, and they're like, come here, come here, can you see this one? Can you see this one? And that was the thing. See if you can see it. Now, here's a, here's a picture of one of them. Here's one of the images here. I don't know. If you look at it too much, you'll get dizzy. But it's just coffee. I thought, and it's coffee. You guys will like this. Um, now, you can see it, but the question is always with this, is can you see it? <laughs> like, can you see it? You're like, yeah, coffee grounds. No, 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 no. Can you see it? Anyone can see it? Probably not. It's kind of hard on this big screen. And my fat head's probably in the way as well. Um, well, if you can see it, you, you would like, once you see it, you get inside the image. It turns into a three. This one is like a, one of those hand mill coffee grinder things. You see it, you're like, oh, I see it. And you're like, you can move around in it and you're like, mind, it's pretty incredible. You can see it. Okay, you can take it off. Oh, take it off now. I think everyone's getting dizzy and falling asleep. Someone maybe hypnotized. Um, all right. So the question was, with these things, these 3D images, you can see it, but you, can you see it? Okay, John 9 is kind of like that. Um, actually, the Synoptic gospels, gospels, Mark does the same thing in his gospel. Like, you can see Jesus, but can you see Jesus? That's the question. You can see him. Oh, yeah, yeah, he, well, who is he? Oh, well, yeah, he's, he's just a guy. Well, I don't know, he might be a sinner. You can see him, but can you see him? And the answer is, typically, in the gospels, is No. Not for most people. Most people can't see it. John even admits that, th- that Jesus' own disciples, him being one of them, doesn't really necessarily see it. And it's really subtle the way that John tells it. It's really explicit in other Gospels. But the way that John does it, sometimes the, 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 the disciples are the most dense. You guys remember the woman um, at the well? And Jesus go, they, walk, they go away and they come back. They're like, why are you talking to the woman? Um, you should eat something. He's like, I have food that you know not of. And they're like, did someone bring him something to eat? Like, they're kind of unaware sometimes. And John does that. He's like, everyone seems to be unaware. Even though they followed Jesus, everyone is unaware, especially the Pharisees, especially the religious leaders. And in a twist of irony, John says that the only person to really see is a blind man. That's the, that's the irony. That's the, ir- the ironic twist in this whole thing. The only person in the story who really sees Jesus is a man born blind. See, sight... Or what we perceive with our eyes, our quick propensity to judge, even our knowledge and prejudice can grossly cripple us to the truth. We think we know. But as Jesus points out, you think you know and your prejudice keep you from the truth. We think we are convinced that we can see and therefore we cast judgment and we put up walls and we reject and we fight and we argue because we we are so convinced that we know. How many times in here do the Pharisees say, we know? How many times the blind man said, I don't know? And who can really see? 
This is the way that John does the reversals. There's a Pharisee who's like, we know. And in the end, they don't know and they're blind. And there's a blind man who's like, I don't know. Where is he? I don't know. He's a sinner. I don't know. I don't know if he's a sinner or not. I know this. I was blind, but now I see you. That's what I know. And he keeps opening his life up to Jesus. And he keeps walking. And as he walks, he's opening his life more and more to Jesus. And this progression. John wants us to get this, that what we need is not just, not just to say that we know. Well, well, I learned this in university, or I, I learned this in my first business venture. We're, we think we're so smart. We're so smart that we miss the simple message of Jesus, and that is to believe in him. To believe. So there's this man. We meet this man who lived before the days of remarkable seeing eye dogs and beautifully created braille. Being blind in the first century meant he sat at the roadside and begged. And that's all he can do. There was literally no other option for this man born blind. There was no social net to catch people like him. So he begged in front of the synagogue. And he was led there every single morning to sit and to beg because people are most charitable going in and out of church. And that's how he made a living. He could do nothing else. And then one day, Jesus and the disciples walked by, and one of the disciples, and this is actually probably good to note here, disciples learn through asking a lot of questions. They're always asking Jesus questions. So they're walking, and Jesus, and one of them asks, is, who sinned, Jesus? Now, the funny thing is, is the man can hear them. Like, how mean. Like, he can hear them. Walks up, who sinned? This man? And, which is a weird implication. Like, he sinned in the womb. That's what they're saying. That he was born blind. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Either his parents sinned or he did something in the womb. Like punched his mom or like, I don't know, like was late on his due date or something. Where he sinned and he was born blind. That was just a weird, really weird thing to say. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? So this sounds like a very mean question. But this question, this belief is really still alive today. This is actually pretty prominent, especially in San Francisco. Um, we call it karma. Um, this is that unstoppable chain of cause and effect that affects us in this life and then in the life to come, or it has affected us in a past life and we're paying for the consequences in the here and now. It's called karma. If you believe in karma, all suffering is explained by you doing wrong in a past life or you doing wrong in this life. And, that's, and the only way for you to make it right is to do good. To balance the scales. Now, that might be an okay belief if you have it good. But that kind of answer is no real answer in the face of real suffering. And how does helping the less fortunate change the karma for the people that are less fortunate? It changes your karma, not theirs. So, like, I'm going to serve the poor. How does you serving them change their situation if you believe in karma truly? You would just be doing it for you. It would be completely selfish, not self-giving. But then there are, are, are moments, though, even if we pull back from karma a bit and go, well, maybe not karma, but cause and effect. There are moments when we are suffering and we have self-reflection and we're vulnerable when we say something like this to ourselves, what did I do to deserve this? We think that I must have done something to deserve this. I mean, the origin of suffering is a cosmic question that humanity has been dealing with for ages. We desire to make some sense of horrible experiences that we go through, whether it's a birth defect, a loss of a loved one, an incurable disease— and what does Jesus say to this? Well, there are, there's a general answer and there's a specific answer that Jesus says. The general answer is this. That sin, 
the, um, in Genesis 3, one um, writer called it, one philosopher called it the vandalism of shalom that happens in Genesis 3. There was peace in Genesis 1 and 2, and then it was vandalized in Genesis 3. The scripture says is the explanation to the brokenness in our world and the reason why Jesus is there in the world in the first place. We are told in Genesis 3, we're given what's called the proto-evangelion, the very first mention of the gospel, the good news, is that one day God would make wrongs right by crushing the serpent's head because the serpent is responsible for the temptation. So God would then reverse, there would be a seed of woman that comes and crushes the, the, the serpent's head. And we don't know, that's not developed at all in the first opening chapters of Genesis, not developed at all, but we see that image and that um, Messiah become more developed as the Jewish Bible continues, the Old Testament continues. And in Jesus, Jesus is there because of sin. He's there to make it right. He's there to crush the serpent's head. He's there to stamp out sin and its effects. So a very common description of the coming Messiah in the book of Isaiah was the Messiah would cause the blind to see. This is throughout the book of Isaiah. That the Messiah would come and he would cause the blind to see because blindness is an effect of the fall. And he would reverse the effects of the fall. So in a sense, all brokenness is attributed to sin. Why do we live in a broken world? Why is there blindness and cancer and disease and death? Because of sin. That's a general question. But the disciples asked a very specific one. Who sinned specifically, his parents or him in the womb, that he had this specific suffering, this blindness? Jesus said it doesn't work like that. That's not how it works. We have a whole book of the Bible to illustrate this fact. If you've ever read the book of Job, it's right in the middle. When I first got the Bible, I thought it was the book of Job. I thought it was weird. It's like a <laughs> book about jobs. Awesome. We have a book of Job right in the middle of our Bible to illustrate this. Job was a righteous man. He loses his family, except for his wife, covered with horrible boils all over his body. He's in so much pain, he wishes he was never born. And then his miserable friends show up. Three friends. And they hang out with him for a while. But after a while, they go, Job, can we just get honest with you? You are in sin, dude. Don't ever do that to a friend who's suffering. Horrible. They walk up to him, and they suffer with him for a little bit. They're like, you are in sin. God is doing, God is punishing you. Because you know God only punishes sinners. And Job's like, and we know, we know we're reading the story. We know it's not Job's fault. There's something cosmic going on here. It's not Job's fault. Job's innocent. And by the end of the book, God vindicates Job and like, everything that you've said, Job, is good. And you need new friends. Like, that's not how the world works. So you read Proverbs, and it seems like a cause and effect world, but then you read Job, and it's not a cause and effect world. There are things that happen that Jesus is saying, that's not the way the world works. Now, there are consequences for your sins, to be sure. But we can draw all suffering to sin, specifically. The world is way more complex than that. There are those who get away with the most heinous of sins, and there are those who are righteous and they suffer. Jesus says, being born blind does not mean you sinned, nor, your parent, nor did your parents sin. That's not what, that's not what, what is going on here. N.T. Wright comments in his commentary on this. He says, no, something much str- stranger at once more mysterious and more hopeful is going on here. The chaos and misery of this present world is, it seems, the raw material out of which the loving, wise, and just God is making his new creation. That's brilliant. He's like, no, no. What's happening is the suffering of the world, the chaos of the world, and the misery of the world is the raw material that God is using 
to recreate the world. So Jesus, in a very Genesis 2-7 kind of way, bends down and grabs dust. You guys get that? Genesis 2-7. We were created from the dust of the earth. So Jesus goes down and grabs dust, grabs dirt, and then he spits in it, which is a whole, has a lot, all, all kinds of crazy implications, but I don't really have time to go into it. He spits in it, and he, and he starts making, like, little mud things. He's just, like, kneading mud pies, you know? And then he takes this dirt, and he puts it on the man's eyes. Now, remember, the man can't see any of this happening. He's just there, blind, and all of a sudden, slap, slap. <laughs> and he's like, oh, mud. And the disciples are like, yeah, mud, yeah, sure, mud, yeah. And he, and he goes, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he does. He, he, someone leads him down there. He grabs and he washes. And he comes home seeing. And not, does, not just does this man come home seeing, he comes home transformed. Remember last week with the woman caught in adultery? He comes home transformed. There is even debate. When he goes back into his, his, his little neighborhood, there's debate if this is the same man or not. Is this the same man? No, it's not. it has to be. No, he was wearing that today. No, it's not the same man. It just looks like him. And he's like, uh, it's me. Hi, everyone. I've never seen you before, but uh, this is me. And um, this, it's me. Okay, you know what this, okay, there are times when Jesus touches people and they're completely transformed. When somebody will see your life and like, that's not, this, you're not the same person. Like you've been so transformed, you look like the person, but you're not him anymore. Or you're not her anymore. This is what I believe, not, this is what Jesus does. He transforms us. To where who we once were, we are now, uh, Paul, the apostle Paul uses the language, we're a new creation. This man was so transformed that they didn't recognize him. I've seen Jesus do this. I believe that Jesus can still do this. And this man says, I'm the man, hey, it's me, guys. Now, I want you to notice the progression. He still hasn't seen Jesus up to this point. So there's a progression that this man enters into in regards to the identity of who Jesus is. How he can see, but he still is blind to who Jesus really is. Now, if you catch the story, this is, we're going to follow this through. This is a really, really beautiful thing. But what he does is he progresses that this man moves towards the light. He knows something significant has happened to him. He can't deny that, and he doesn't. But he moves closer and closer to the mysterious person he only knows as Jesus. I want you to notice how humble and courageous he is the whole time. Look at verse 10. How were your eyes open? His neighbors asked him. How were your eyes open? He replied, the man they call Jesus. That's it. That's all that this man knows right now. And he's going to grow. He's like, well, he's just the man they call Jesus. Jesus. They call him Jesus. And that's his only response. He hasn't seen him yet. He's only heard his voice. But he's gaining some spiritual insight. He's moving forward. They ask him, where is the man? He's like, I don't know. This is utter humility. He's like, I don't know. Next, they bring him to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees start investigating him. They ask him a series of questions. How did he do it? And the guy's like, mud. Just put mud in my eyes. And then washing. And then there's a division between the Pharisees, and they can't figure out if Jesus is good or bad. And here's the division, so you understand. The division is, some say that he broke the Sabbath. Jesus broke the Sabbath, and therefore is a sinner. And whatever miracle he did is now null and void because he's a sinner who broke the Sabbath. Others say God doesn't use sinners to perform such signs. This is a very messianic sign. The blind are made to see. 
So God, he, he, didn't, he must have been something other than, he must not have been breaking the Sabbath, and he's someone other than just a simple teacher. And then they're divided. One group thinks that he broke the Sabbath law. The Sabbath law is the fourth commandment. I think we would do well to start remembering the Sabbath and keep it holy, but that's a whole different sermon. I've actually taught it before, but whatever. Um, it's a very important Sabbath, but it's a, a very important law. Fourth law, commandment, to rest on the seventh day. To rest. Now, they said that Jesus wasn't resting. This is why. He was kneading. You know what kneading is? Like kneading bread? They said he was kneading mud. Like, how did he make the mud? Well, he had a spit, and he had grabbed mud, he had to do this. But when, that's working. We're, broke, broke the Sabbath. Doesn't count. Or they said he was anointing. You're not allowed to anoint on, on, on Sabbath. So he took mud, kneaded it, and then he anointed his eyes, and therefore he broke the Sabbath. But here again is the irony. John is showing that Jesus' action on the Sabbath is the clearest indication of the intention of the Sabbath. The whole reason why the Sabbath is there is for restoration. The purpose of the Sabbath is for rest, oration. See what I did there? Restoration. Jesus has come to fulfill the law to bring us rest and restoration in, to humanity that, that we've never experienced before. I mean, we try to rest. We try to find true rest and restoration through days off, through vacations. We never find it, and Jesus brings it. That's like the point here. And then when the religious leaders see that he did it, they say, stop, you can't do that. So they turn to the blind man and ask him plainly. It says, verse 17, then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he's opened. He said, the man is a prophet. Okay, did you notice the progression? Our boy is progressing. He first said, they call him Jesus. And then he says, he's a prophet. He's moving closer. He's more open now. They call him Jesus. And now he's a prophet. He's moving toward the light. He realizes that this is happening. And this is not happening by a mere man, not a mere teacher. He's a prophet. But the religious believers still don't believe him, so they call his parents. And this is what John does here. John puts... Their, his cowardice, unloving parents in the story to, to show you what, someone, what a coward looks like and what someone courageous looks like. The parents are like, we don't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. Don't ask us any questions. Talk to him. I don't want to testify. We don't want to testify about our son. We don't want to testify about anything. We just will say this. He was born blind, but everything else, ask him. We don't want to get kicked out. Fearful. Fearful. So they summon the man again. Second line of questioning. Now this line, this is where it gets so fun. A second time they summoned the man and they said, give glory to God. Meaning, don't give glory to this, this, this teacher, Jesus. Give glory to God. Agree with us. He's a sinner. Tell the truth. We know this man's a sinner. Then he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And here is, right here, the power of testimony. You might not know all the theology behind Jesus. You might not know what Christ has done like throughout history or everything he's ever said in the Gospels. But one thing you do know, you know what he's done in your life. This following Jesus is hard. We make it hard sometimes, but it's actually fairly easy. It's as easy as like, this is what Christ has done in my life. And I know around here, around this town and around this 
area, it's really hard to openly talk about Jesus. It's really easy to openly talk about just about anything else, but not Jesus. And some of us fear that. When someone asks us what we're doing Sunday, we're like, I'm like hanging out with friends and like eating lunch. <laughs> we fear saying that we're followers of Christ. We fear that what that might do in our job. We fear that we might get kicked out of certain social circles. What Jesus is doing, or John is doing here, is putting this in here to go, it's as simple as saying, I was blind and I see. But what if they ask me a million questions? You know what you can say? I don't know. You can say that. But what about this and this and this and this? And I read this and I've, I've also studied this. And you're like, I don't know. All I know is that I was blind and then Christ opened my eyes. All I know is what Christ has done in my life. That's what I know. All that other stuff can come later for you. You can study that, but you, you, could, you can actually say, I don't know. You can actually take the approach of humility and not want to fight everyone. You can do that. That's a thing. Did you know that? That's a thing you, you can actually do. So, he opened my eyes. Now, let me read to you again, verse 26 through 34, because this is so good. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Did you notice that he's actually turning into like what, how Jesus talks now? <laughs> how many times has Jesus said this? Like, I've told you, and you're not listening to me. He's doing the same thing that Jesus has done. I've told you already, you don't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Oh, that's a dig, okay? <laughs> then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Now, this is where, this is one of those, if you've ever seen Goodwill Hunting, the do you like apples scene, that's what this is right here. This is the do you like apple scene. If you've seen that movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Here's an unschooled, be blind beggar who sits and begs in front of the synagogue. These men rule the synagogue. And this blind beggar is now in their presence, which he shouldn't be in their presence in the first place, but he is. And now he's schooling them. He's like, oh, that's so remarkable. You don't know where he comes from. Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind, and that's true. There is examples of people that their sight is restored in the Old Testament and even in, in, in Jewish writings, but never someone who was born blind is, are they healed. He's like, no one has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they said, get out of our presence. And he probably would have said, do you like apples? How do you like them apples? That's what this is, that's what's happening right here. He is completely, completely schooling it. But did you notice? Did you also notice that he is progressing? Our guy is progressing. He now goes this. He goes from his name is Jesus to he's a prophet to he's from God. You see that progression? He's from God. What this, this, he, this, this, this blind man who now sees is so open to Jesus. He's so open. He's like open to the light. His eyes are illuminated and now slowly, and we see this progression of his spirit being illuminated. He's actually seeing who Jesus is. He is the man they call Jesus. He is a prophet. He is from God. The whole point of John's writings is that, he's, that Jesus is from God. He's a logos made flesh. We studied that in John chapter 1. 
And this is Jesus' whole message, that he's from above, that Jesus is from God. Now, he has opened himself to the light. He does not call the light darkness, no matter what it means in society, no matter what it might socially, might socially happen to him. He stays open to Jesus. He stays open to Christ. He's like, other than Jesus, he's the hero of our story. He remains, though he's blind, though he's an unassuming beggar, he stays open to Jesus and he's progressing. He's progressing. He's progressing. But we see the religious leaders moving in the opposite direction. They are becoming more angered. They're coming more stuck in darkness. They're coming more closed off to light. And so they say, and then they say this thing that's actually really cruel. They say, you were steeped in sin from birth. Meaning the reason why you're blind is that you're a sinner and you were born in sin. And that's why you're blind. But now he's not blind anymore. You know what's interesting? Can we just think about this guy for a second? Um, beggar, born blind. He first meets Jesus and his guys because his disciples say, who sinned, him or his parents? And then towards the end of the story, the religious leaders say, you were steeped in sin from birth. Jesus' disciples call this man, the reason why he's blind is because he's a sinner. And the religious leaders say, the reason why you're blind is that you're a sinner. And this is pretty damaging. New life in Christ and the first couple experiences are people telling him, who they think he is. And the story opens with the disciples asking who sinned, and then he gets kicked out of the synagogue and told that he's been steeped in sin from birth. This is kind of traumatic. So right here, I would like to issue, I would like to issue an apology to anyone in here who the disciples of Jesus or the leaders in the church wrote you off because they believed that you were born in sin or steeped in sin. And that has happened. I know it's happened, and I know it's traumatic. You could probably be heavily engrossed in sin. I don't know. But every single sin can be atoned for. All sins can be forgiven, but one sin. And this, that's the sin of rejection, of hard-heartedness, of closing yourself off to the light. Jesus says there's no room for that person. There's only judgment for that person because you claim to see you're blind. And you might have a hard heart right now because somewhere in your past, some religious leader, some follower of Jesus said you're steeped in sin from birth. You're defective. You, nothing good can happen in your life. And I get how traumatic an experience in a church or from a disciple of Jesus can leave you hard-hearted and shut off. And that makes sense. And I pray that this next verse is like a glass of cool water for you. In John 9.35, the very next verse, it says this. When he got kicked out of the synagogue, it says, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and he went to find him. I, I, if you read the first time, I kind of changed the wording around. It means the exact same thing, though. When he got kicked out of the synagogue, Jesus went and found him. Jesus had heard he was kicked out. Like, I have to go find him. If you read the next chapter, chapter 10 of John, it's about Jesus, the good shepherd, shepherd, going after sheep. Going after the sheep to give them rest. The, she, the, the good shepherd who leads them, who lays his life down for the sheep. He's the good shepherd. And he says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I pray that you would hear the voice of Jesus today. That you would hear the voice of Jesus right now and you would be open to the light. 
like this man is. Jesus heard that he had, they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? So Jesus finds him, like, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the Son of Man is an Old Testament messianic title taken from the book of Daniel. Of the one from God who had the authority and the, and the power, and this man, okay, here is the progression again. He goes from this man, is, his name is Jesus, to he's a prophet, to he's from God. And now we hear, do you know the Son of Man? Do you know the Messiah? He goes, who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Once again, the openness he has to the light. He wants to believe. He wants to believe. He wants to progress. He says, tell me, and I'm ready to believe. Tell me. Who is he? I'm ready. I've come to the point, I've had this experience, and I haven't, and he's never, remember, he's not seen Jesus yet. This is the first time he sees Jesus. He doesn't know who he is. doesn't know what he looks like. This guy walks up to him and goes, do you want to, do you want to believe in the Son of Man? He's like, who is he, sir? I'll, I'll believe in him. Just tell me who he is. Jesus said, now you have seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, like that, I believe. I believe. You don't have to convince me. I've been open to you the entire time. I've been progressing. Our blind man made to see has been progressing. He's been following the light. He's been opening his life up to the light over and over and over again. Now he says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And he's progressed from calling him Jesus to prophet to one from God to Jesus now the Messiah. I believe you and I worship you. He has come into the light. He has moved toward Jesus in belief and faith. He sees from blind to sight. But more remarkable than his sight being restored is that he goes from spiritual darkness to spiritual enlightenment. Now as a reader... I watch this drama, and I love this story, and I watch it unfold, and you watch it unfold, and we recount the story, but this drama is supposed to work its magic on us as well. We have to choose. I'm invited to participate in this story, too. John has crafted the story so that I'm forced, you and I are forced as readers, to make the same judgment as Jesus' audience made. Who is Jesus? John, it says, Jesus says in John 9, 39, Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. He's quoting Isaiah, chapter six. The judgment that Jesus is talking about is the, the imp- it's, that it's impossible to remain neutral with him. Jesus divides this room in half. Jesus divides this city in half. Jesus divides the world into two people. Those who believe in him and those who reject him. And the ones that reject him, he says, those who reject me knowingly are in sin. If they know me, and they know me, and they see me, and they've heard of me, and they, and they weigh the evidence, and they reject me, those people are blind, and there are, they are in sin. And Jesus says, I wish that you didn't know me. It would be better if you were blind, and then we can work with that. See, the distinction is not between those who are blind and those who see it's between those who know they are blind and those who claim they can see. The best posture that you can have is to know that you're blind. To know that you need, you need, you're so desperate for a touch from God. You are so desperate for God to open your eyes. As desperate as a blind beggar. That's how desperate you are. No matter what education you have, no matter how successful you are in your job, no matter how much you're killing it right now in life, that you are in need and that you are blind and you need Jesus to open your eyes. 
And this text makes you choose. Are you blind? Are you claiming that you can see? Do you realize that you're blind unless Jesus opens your eyes and that you're painfully in need? And this doesn't just go for salvation. This goes for progression. What the, 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 the scriptures talk about is sanctification. The process wherein we're, more, we're made godly, we need Jesus to open our eyes. We must remain open to the light, allowing God to shine on us, penetrate dark parts in our lives, and shine on us the, the on light, shine his light on the pride in our own lives. I think every um, source of tension that happens in our world is pride and thinking that we understand. I understand that when we stand in front of the light of Christ, it's a scary thing. It's a very scary thing, and I understand that it's scary. I mean, the fact that Jesus wants to shine his light of truth in every single bit of dark places in your heart, place that you hide from others, place that you hide from him, that he wants to shine the light and he wants you to be open to him. He wants you to continue to progress to go, here, here I am, and here I am, and here I am. In the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, one of uh, Annie Dillard's theme in her book um, is sight and perception. In one chapter in her book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, where she just reflects on, a lot of the book is reflecting on sight, what she sees, what she perceives. In one of the chapters, she recounts what she learned from reading stories of blind patients who recovered their sight after surgeons removed cataracts. And she reflects on how, though they, are, they were delighted that they can see, most of them, when they, f- they found their new experience of sight disorienting, if not downright terrifying. They went from blindness and then like, you can see, they're like, yeah, I can see. Oh my gosh, I can see. And it freaked them out. There was one patient that said, if you don't turn this off, I'm going to gouge my eyes out. I can't do this. She writes in her book, the mental effort involved in seeing proves overwhelming for most patients. It oppresses them to realize, if they ever do at all, the tremendous size of the world, which they had previously convinced of as something touchingly manageable. It oppresses them to realize that they have been visible to people all along, perhaps unattractively so, with their knowledge or without their knowledge or consent. It is a, a, a disheartening number of them refuse to use their new vision, continuing to go over objects with their tongues and lapsing into apathy and despair. It's no accident that one of the controlling metaphors of conversion is recovering sight. But this new sense of sight from light, of the, from the light of the world, is disorienting. I know there might be some of you like, okay, I'm Christian, but I'm not as stoked this guy is. Like, I start seeing the world, and I'm actually kind of discouraged. Because the world's pretty messed up. And this whole facade that goes around in, in, in the valley and in the city is really, really messed up as well. And what is my, even, my life even for? Why am I here? And then you start freaking out. You're like, because you start seeing everything. And then you start seeing your own heart. Like, how do I root out this sin in my own life? Like, why do I think that? I don't want to think that anymore. And you start seeing with real, true eyes. See, spiritual eyes aren't just simply perception. They're perception in the true reality, ultimate reality. And you see with spiritual eyes and you see everything. And it freaks you. It can freak you out. It can be very, very disorienting. It can be very scary. We see things for what they are. We see ourselves for what we are. And we look in the mirror like, I hate this. I hate what I see. I hate that I can see, 
what I replace for God in my life. I hate that this part of me. And we can see into our own hearts of brokenness and our own hearts of darkness. So what do you do? Here's what you do. You keep moving toward the light. You keep and you continue to, opening, to open up your life to the light of, of Christ. You must progress this way. You must continue to open up your life. You might like, okay, this, this thing in my life is so dark and so gross. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to keep progressing. I'm going to keep moving toward the light. The only people that reject the light, John says, at the very beginning of his prologue, he says, those who know that their deeds are evil. Those are the people that don't go into the light. But if you want those deeds reborn, if you want that life reborn, you move toward the light. One of the heroes in our story, other than Jesus, comes to Jesus in complete emptiness. The empty man is filled. The men, the men they, who claim they need no doctor are left in their darkness. The men who say, I need nothing from Jesus, I need nothing from God, we have everything we need, we're followers of Moses, they remain in darkness. So this story is really about open hearts and closed hearts. The man, open heart. The Pharisees, closed hearts. And the story invites you to find your place in it. Who are you? Do you have an open heart or a closed heart? Will you believe? Will you believe? I cannot open your eyes. Only Christ can do that. I can lead you right to him and say believe. Or if you're a follower of Jesus already, I can say continue to open up your life to the warmth and the light of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you give us new life, that we become, because of your greatness, born again. And so I pray now that, God, this church, that we would together progress towards the light, that we would move toward you, Lord. That you would give us the faith. Faith is a beautiful gift, that you would give us the faith to believe the whole church, even like spiritually, can be seen as progressing towards you, opening up more of our lives to you, opening up more of our darkness to you, more of our, and even places, God, I know that there are, are people, men and women here that are struggling with seeing the truth. And because they see the world differently now, they're just, they, they're just it's disorienting and despair has gripped their heart. I pray that you would comfort them, God. And that you'd show them that you are at work in their lives and that you're making them new, that you're transforming them, that you're transforming them, God. Show them that. In Jesus' name, amen.